Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew with the Magicians episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we are reviewing episode five, Cheat Day. Directed by Joshua Butler, written by Mike Moore. IMDb gave this a 6.9. A little harsh on the rating. We were at a 9.2 for last episode. I know there weren't as many reviews up yet, so that could be a factor, but I thought this episode was just as good as the last one. Yeah, I love the change of tone. We really start off this episode just with a different feeling, and that continues throughout the episode. And it was kind of a nice relief. I mean, it was back and forth a lot. We had a ton of scenes. We're going to have a lot to review in our plot. But I thought everything was interesting, and I didn't feel disjointed, perhaps, as we have in other episodes where there were a lot of scenes. I was left feeling sad about my own life because the normal office person life that they continually let us know sucks <laughs> is my life. So I was like, oh, man. <laughs> yes, and there's this underlying feeling that he's not going to be there forever. This is just a temporary madness he needs to endure, which was kind of depressing for us. <laughs> yes. If you guys have noticed, Christina sounds different. That's because I have banished her from this household. And she is... <laughs> I told her she needs to be at least 200 miles away from us. And she is via the I'm Skype. I'm on a quest. She's on a quest. <laughs> I'm looking for the seeing hair. If you're on a quest, could you quest us some new microphones, please? I'll do my best. I'll ask the magical creatures. Yes, I'm sorry if the audio is not as good as usual. We try not to do Skype if we can possibly avoid it. But I'm out of town, so this was the only way we could get it to you on time. I wish the Clatchers could see you right now because you have that beautiful, beautiful glow of just rolled out of bed, have not done your hair. I don't even know if you've had your coffee yet. <laughs> I haven't. This is what I'm sacrificing to get this podcast out. I'm actually in the garage right now. But anyways, let's talk magicians. The overview of this episode is Quentin adjusts to his new life. Penny seeks help from an unexpected source. Elliot and Margot contend with the dangers of ruling. Julia and Katie discover yet another consequence of Reynard's attack. So we're still not done with the Julia and Reynard story. In fact, it seems we've only just begun. We've only just begun. All right, Chris, I have a few fun facts for you today. We're going to learn a little bit more about magic. Great. But before that, I want to tell you about this awesome tweet that I found from at Melanie. I'm guessing her name is Melanie, and she did a okay. cool rendition of it. She tweeted about a magician's personality quiz. And Chris, I don't know if you've taken this, but after seeing this, I had to take it. And if anyone listening wants to take it, just go to our Twitter, at CKC Podcast. We have the retweet on our timeline. And in this personality quiz, you're asked 10 questions, and they range from what 90s band do you most like? To if you have magic, what's the first thing you would do with it? Would you help yourself? Would you cure hunger, world peace, things of that nature? And it's pretty fun. It, it, it takes like three minutes. Malini got Elliot, which I thought I would get Elliot as well. 
guess who I got? Oh, is it a male character? You're cheating. I'm not giving you. <laughs> oh, come on. I need a hint. I haven't even seen the quiz yet. You knowing me so well, what would you think I have gotten? Okay. Um, Quentin. Good guess, but wrong. Okay. I actually got Penny. Oh, dear. Yeah, and it says, while you'd rather spend your days wasting time and money at leather pants stores across America, you're a traveler with a higher purpose, so deal with it. I don't know. Well, now I'm distrustful of this quiz because Penny would be the last person I would peg you for. I know. Uh, but I like him so much. I'm like, yeah, that's cool. I'll be Penny. Maybe that's what it is. You're drawn to him subconsciously. Well, yeah. And as you know, I'm a Libra, so I'm wishy-washy. And I got to tell you, a lot of those answers I was very wishy-washy about. <laughs> so maybe I would have changed it if I took it a Well, I'll time. have to verify it. I'll go on and take the quiz and see if it sounds right for me. So again, if you want to find this quiz, just go to our Twitter, at CKC Podcast. And while you're there, why don't you give us a follow? We tweet about so many things, not just magicians. We tweet about Mr. Robot. Game of Thrones. Sherlock. Fun stuff. I even tweeted earlier this week about NASA finding eight Earth-sized planets in the closest galaxy from us and the possibility of there being water on those planets. And that was my very ignorant rendition of the story. So you should check it out. It's pretty interesting. So let's learn about magic. Did you know that magic can be sourced back 500 years, but at that time it was perceived much differently than it is today? Illusions and trickery were associated with witchcraft and other supernatural power that was feared, and through some time periods, even punished. Performance magic took the name of stage magic, not because performers were necessarily using a stage, but to clarify that it was not related to its dark, ritualistic opposite. Yeah, when you were talking about when it was perceived as witchcraft, I was thinking of the movie Fantastic Beasts. And there's that side plot about how people in the United States are viewing magic and that it's something dangerous to be stopped. And I think that they're going to be taking a lot of that historically from events that actually happened. I think 500 years ago, it was still remnants of when we still had magic in, in the world. <laughs> Here we go on our theory. <laughs> yeah. But I'm well, sure, Chris, if you saw someone doing magic, let's say you saw Quentin doing something uh, with smoke rings or with anything, wouldn't your first instinct be like, oh, this might be dangerous? I don't know. I was imagining that when he was in the office and he nearly got caught trying to open the jelly jar using magic. And I thought that's not what my impression would be. I would be fascinated and intrigued. Show me how you did that. What just happened there? More like Julia when she first found out magic existed. But I suppose that's dangerous as well. If you look at what happened to her, she was excited by the idea, but she came obsessed. And I have a feeling it would be one of the two. You would either immediately reject it and see it as dangerous and want to hurt these people, or you would want to hound them until you could figure out how to do it. Yeah. And you know what? Going back to this personality quiz, you just reminded me because I was thinking you'd probably be similar to Alice in that fact. And the reason why you reminded me is I was thinking if you saw magic, how would you react off of it? And I think you would be the studier. Yeah. Give me the manual. How can I learn it? <laughs> yes, exactly. 
But you bring up a point that was very sad in this episode, and they haven't clarified it for us yet, which makes it all the more scary, I think. Mayakovsky believes that magic is about to die in the world. We knew that because it was suffering in Fillory, there were consequences on Earth, but we weren't quite sure what that was going to be. I believe that he's a smart man and he sees this coming and he makes mention of the fact that something bad will happen to the magicians themselves if magic is erased. And so he's working on his own plan to deal with that. But what is that going to be? What will the world look like and what will happen to our characters? Yeah, I'm wondering why magicians specifically are in danger. I would think that they just lose their magic, but maybe... Hmm, losing their magic will cause a lot of them to lose their minds or their sense of being? That could be. I wasn't even thinking about it that way. I thought physically something might happen to them, that they're pulled between worlds in a sense. But yeah, mentally, I could definitely see that. They're showing you the effects from Quentin's point of view for people who are forced to go out and live in the real world without magic. And even people like Emily who have convinced themselves that it's for the best don't really believe that. Magic has been used for years as a team-building exercise in corporate settings. Thought of mostly as a show or performance, it is often overlooked that magic has a great ability to form bonds in the workplace. Two of the main components of magic are to engage and entertain, skills that translate perfectly into team-building. So Chris, as an art therapist, you normally have to do... I don't I guess you wouldn't call it team building, but you have to do group exercises. Do you perceive magic as maybe a tool? I can definitely see how it's something that forces you to work together. We saw those examples of when the crew had to learn to do this, the shield charm that they were learning to fight the beast. It really forced them all to be at their best and know what their position was within the group and how to work together to accomplish a common goal. And perhaps when you're working with something that's so powerful and potentially dangerous, it does force you to be a team player. Yeah, I think you're right. And who doesn't love magic? We also see that working against our characters at times, though, and that's why I can't wait to talk about what happened between Quentin and Emily this episode the darker side of magic, if you want to call it that. Speaking of, let's talk new faces and places for a minute before we get into our episode. For faces, we had Emily Greenstreet, who is not necessarily new, but appearing for the first time in any way that matters to us now. She is the former Breakbill student that Charlie saved after she performed a spell that went horribly wrong and disfigured her. And he tried to help her to put that right, and that's what caused Charlie to turn into a Niffin. So we see a lot more of Emily here. Next, we have Baylor, played by Reese Ward. He is a proud soldier of Florians United, a foo fighter, we find out. (laughs) And that causes Margot endless amusement throughout the episode. Are you a fan of foo fighters, or were you growing up? Uh, Not really. I mean, I knew who they were, but I wasn't a fan necessarily. I like that they keep doing these references, but this one was a little overdone for me. I disagree. First of all, I love that they do 90s references because that's right (laughs) up our wheelhouse. Yeah. And I took a look at some Foo Fighter songs, and I do remember a lot of them, but I'm not sure if I was necessarily a fan either. (laughs) 
Well, and the acronym makes sense. It's FU, so it stands for Florians United. And this is a group that wants to see a native Florian on the throne instead of a child of Earth. The final face we get is that of the Doctor, played by Michelle Harrison, who we'll see in the Julia Cady storyline. For places, we got Plaxco, the company that Quentin now goes to work for in the real world. And I don't know if we figure out exactly what they do ever. No, I believe they're nondescript on purpose. Because one, it probably doesn't matter, and two, it's kind of fun. When we talk about later, when you go on a quest, discoverfillery.com, mm-hmm. the cool thing is I thought it was an ad because a thing pops up just like you see the landscape ad on top of a website. And I read it, and it's actually Plaxco. And it says, the business of enterprise, the enterprise of business. So again, <laughs> it's kind of like winking at you like, yeah, we're not going to tell you what it's about because it doesn't matter. But it's it doesn't a, it's matter. A fun play. It's any business. That's the whole point of it. Yeah. It's all the same to them, this very mundane existence. And Quentin, it seems, doesn't even know what he's supposed to be doing there. I don't think he does much all day long. Apparently, he's supposed to be jerking off a lot. <laughs> Yes. Well, and lastly, we have a new creature, somewhat. We've heard about it, but we saw in this episode, I believe, the seeing hare, which is one of our questing beasts that can tell you the future. So we finally got to see two times, actually, with two different creatures, how they're supposed to sound when they speak. (laughs) And I guess I'm going to say that the show played it safe because it could get really corny making an animal speak. So you're either you either get it right or you get it so wrong so i think they played it safe in the fact that they kept it low for both of them you can hardly hear them when i say both of them i mean the hair and also the sloth yeah they're very muted you can hardly understand it and it kind of plays it safe because it doesn't give you that corny factor pregnant 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 (laughs) i like the sounds of the sloth though that was interesting yeah very much so It wasn't slow, though. We thought it'd be slower. No, good point. I didn't think about that. But again, I don't think that pays off in this kind of show. Yeah. You know? All right, well, let's jump into our plot because we do have a lot of scenes to cover. We open up this scene at Break Bills with Dean Fogg and Penny, where Penny is trying to light these candles, and he's unable to, and Dean Fogg has to acquiesce and light him himself. He tells Penny he spoke with Professor Lipson about the tests she ran on his hands. There's nothing they can do for him. (laughs) Of course there's nothing they can do for him. As per usual with Penny. As per usual with Dean Fogg. Yeah, that too. He has two options. One, go to someone who knows more, Mayakovsky. Or two, go where Quentin is, begging the question, where is Quentin? Now I have to ask you, I thought magic came from within. If you have it in you, You use the hands as a tool to get it out into the world and utilize your magic. But to me, now it sounds like the hands are what's magic. No, I think you're absolutely right still with your first point. It reminded me of Harry Potter a little in that the magic is inside of you. But in order to get it out and manifest it in the real world, you have to have a tool or an implement. For them, it was their wands. With the magicians, it is their hands. And it feels as though as they learn magic and practice it with their hands over time, this becomes an integral part of performing the spell. Now, I'm not sure why 
say with Penny, he couldn't relearn it with his new set of hands the way it looked like Dean Fogg was doing when he was healed. They said it has to do with the fact that they're not actually his hands. But, yeah, that's a little strange. I feel like it's because it's Penny and we need to give him another challenge. Yeah, I guess Dean Fogg kind of told us about that when he said, these are my hands. Right. And those aren't your hands. Or he said it somewhere, somewhere like that. But then we also get the beautiful quote from Penny. He's definitely a quotable dude. The drunk perv in the igloo? Pass. Yeah, he is not excited about this whole Mayakovsky thing. And I have to say, if I was him, I would be way more pissed that this is one of those typical story tropes where you get a wish, but it's never what you actually asked for. So she just regrew him a normal set of hands. And now the answer is he has to go back to break Bill South to deal with this dude. He's not very happy. So do you think it's one of those where you should have wished, I want my hands fixed, but with magic still? Perhaps, but I have a feeling no matter what you asked for, you're not getting what you want. And they're learning that more and more. Even magic can't fix a lot of things. But things aren't looking that much better for Quentin, who is now at a non-magic, boring desk job for this company, Plaxco. Seems like he's not doing much work at all, just sending responses to emails that say, looks good. He has decided to give up magic, but finds himself doing it at odd times, like when he nearly gets caught opening that jelly jar. And someone notices. He gets an email that says, I saw, me too. Lunch, E. Green Street. I thought that email was perfectly done if there was any more to it one we probably would have missed it as a viewer because i was having trouble reading those emails Mm. and two it was just enough to get you excited like oh shit someone else there knows magic and is in the same mind frame as him right away i was like "Ooh, i'm interested now did you recognize that name right away not at all yeah i think that was good that it sort of faded into the background we heard about this story from alice but we were relating it to charlie at the time not thinking much about the woman who we spoke about is the one that tried to change her appearance in order to attract her lover a professor at break bills but it went horribly wrong she was disfigured and charlie tried to help her which is what caused him to transform into a niffin when it got away from him And it seems as though nobody has really seen or heard from Emily since. There's a feeling that break bills or Dean Fogg or someone helps these magicians who are done with magic to locate a place out in the real world. What I really enjoyed, which is something we hadn't gotten to see in season one or two so far, is how magic can help you in everyday life occurrences. The mundane, like opening a jar of jelly. Or like spilling something on your shirt and being able to just magic it away. And that made me want magic even more. Yeah, and what was great about that is you see how it becomes almost instinct. It's second nature to Quentin to clean up that spill when it happens. He hardly even realizes he's using magic. And can we talk about how good Q looks in a suit? (laughs) And with his little ponytail. Yeah. I love it. He looks more like a man. He looks more uh, confident. I know it's just... He's not more confident because of the suit, but he looks more confident. He's one in particular that doesn't really, his body frame doesn't really look good in the Felorian getup. Yeah, he kind of looked like a little boy exactly. play, <laughs> playing Adventure Time. And at this point, we now get to see what Julia and Katie are up to. 
and they are looking through old newspapers for strange events that might tip them off to the first time Reynard was banished. I don't know what they think they're going to find. Yeah, me neither. This is stacks and stacks of newspapers. Katie even says that it feels very pointless. And at the smell of Katie's pizza, Julia throws up. Turns out it was the third time that day. And she realizes she's pregnant. Now, uh, I have uh, been who thinking... Who didn't see that one coming? Yeah, seriously, I've been thinking about this uh, since last season. She's pregnant. She has a demon baby inside of her. And that's why she hasn't been killed by Reynard. And that's why she has more power. I think she hasn't imbued power for herself. I think that power that she has right now is actually the power from the baby. Yeah, absolutely. And they set all of that up with the weirdness of how Ember had to transfer his power to Alice, but they were calling attention to it. And I know this is going to sound really gross, but there's no other way to put it. Alice had to drink the sperm, imbibe it somehow, and that's where the power came from. And after Julia was raped, they made an appoint to show that the same had happened to her throughout the course of the experience. And as you said, there were red flags all over the place afterwards. That's kind of what I was talking about that episode, but I didn't want to tip my hand. And this is not from the book. They're going in a different direction with the whole she's carrying a demon baby. The baby's name is going to be Damien. But now we don't know that for sure. There's a chance that it's Richard's baby. Uh, I think we know it for sure. Yeah. I, wanna, I wanted to throw a little intrigue in there. Yeah, but... no, it's not going to work. <laughs> Katie says that any magic that could reverse the pregnancy is too dark and not worth the risks. So despite her fears about having a regular abortion, because it might not be a human baby, Katie makes the appointment for her anyways. Yeah. And we could see what's going to happen here. We knew already, watching it from this scene, that an abortion is not going to work. But we didn't see how it would go down. Yeah. And I like the way it does go down. That's true. And back at Castle Whitespire... Elliot is still trying unsuccessfully to make champagne. He's not giving this up. This is the moment when Fen brings him the talking rabbit that tells him she's pregnant. I have the best news. If that rabbit was a Prosecco, I'd agree. This isn't just a rabbit. Pregnant. Jesus. We're going to be parents. That rabbit knows if you're... Pregnant. Uh... Okay, okay. You're not smiling. I'm sorry. It's just, you see, I'm... Okay, Rabbit, chill. And his reaction to that is going to continue within the next few scenes. But the initial response was shock and perhaps worry. Worry is probably not the right word. Trying to think of the right word. Listen, this is the opposite of any bone or any feeling inside of Elliot's body. He is not the type of guy that wants to have a child. Especially a child with a woman that he doesn't know if he loves. Or especially a child with a woman. How about that? Yeah, she's still relatively a stranger to her. He hasn't even gotten past the idea that he's married to her. And now he has to deal with this on top of everything that's happening with the kingdom. Overwhelmed, maybe. Yeah, I thought I had stress in my life. Looking at Elliot's life, it's pretty stressful. He's got the weight of a magical world on his shoulders. A magical world that doesn't want him. And just keeps throwing him curveballs. Now let's journey back to Breakbill's South. It's been a while since we've been there. Yeah, I got a actually a nostalgic feeling. Me too. To come back to this location. 
I gotta say, I love Mayakovsky. Yes, he's wonderful. His personality is just tremendous. He's so he has so many layers, and he's fun to watch and inspiring at the same time. And he's kind of a dick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that works great for Penny because Penny's kind of a dick too. That's true. So Penny does transport to Break Bill South to talk to Mayakovsky, who starts his typical shenanigans by trapping him on the roof of his of his skylight. <laughs> Penny explains to Mayakovsky that his hands can't cast spells. Mayakovsky says he will help him in return for Penny's help with the project. And then nonchalantly walks away with a wave of a hand, just drops Penny on his face. Oh, geez. I love it, though. (laughs) Me too. I want more Mayakovsky. Let's unbanish him. I'm glad they brought him back for this episode. You know, I was under the impression that Break Bills South, because it's Break Bills was a school, but it, I'm now starting to think he's alone over there and students are transfer, transferred over there for mini lessons and then come back. Yeah, that's what it seems like. It's a separate small campus, but also slash his home and research institute. And we'll learn more about Mayakovsky's background later, which I was happy to get that as well. First, though, at lunch, Emily tells Quentin that every day in the real world is incredibly dull. She says she doesn't use magic anymore and that anyone who gives it up has a bad story. They agree that for every one thing magic fixes, five shitty things spring up in its place until you are left with just a big fucking problem. When she spills her drink on instinct, Q casts the spell to clean it, which angers her, and she leaves abruptly. Okay. I was wondering after last episode, how are they going to make it interesting when Q just goes back to normal life? Mm-hmm. And I think this was perfectly done. This is so interesting. It's a different feeling. We have a new character. They're trying not to do magic. And it's a whole nother bump in Quentin's life. And I think it forces him a little bit. He does go back to it. But it forces him to stop dwelling on his losses, which was getting a little old for me. And to realize that he is not special, quote unquote. I think for some people, when they're going through things like this, there's a feeling that nobody could possibly understand. My problems are bigger than everyone else's. Nobody's been through anything like this before. This view of the world shows him that there are many other magicians that have gone through horrible things, experiences with magic that have scared them enough that they're all living in little pocket communities out in the real world, just trying to get by and forget about the fact that there's a whole other world underneath the surface. So do you think Dean Fogg knows the owner of this company or is this company created for the magicians who couldn't deal with the, with the pain? I could see that going either way. I could see it being like when he brings the students in to test them, and see if they're able to get into break bills, and if they don't, he magics them to forget it. Perhaps he magics different companies and bosses to just not care about some of their employees and what they're doing. Hmm, okay. At first I was thinking, wow, Dean Fogg didn't think this through. Why would he take people, magicians, who are used to a more exciting lifestyle and throw them into a mundane office job. But then the other side of me thinks, well, maybe they have to go to that extreme as to not want to use their magic or need to use their magic anymore. 
If he got yeah, him a well, job that was more exciting, maybe they'd be more apt to just continue using their magic. Or perhaps just as a lesson, like what's happening with Quentin here. Oh, so not a permanent move. Yeah, that's how I was seeing it. Oh, I see. I like that better. Although, you know, maybe for some people that takes longer than others. Emily has been here this whole time just trying to, to live. But upon her encounter with Q, a lot of that changes. In this scene, I really love the way they spoke to each other. I love this part in particular. Quentin says, is everybody out here really so lifeless? Yes, we are. We are. That's why we drink. Well, I drank just fine as a magician. <laughs> yeah, because your world was so overwhelming and scary, and you needed a break from it all. Now you're going to drink because each day is so goddamn dull, and that takes a lot more booze. Yep. And again, this is one of the parts that, that made me think about my life, and I'm like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that rings pretty true. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what they're doing here on purpose. Okay, let's go back to White Spire. We're jumping around a lot, but... It turns out Elliot is a bit uncomfortable, if that's the word we want to give it, with Fenn's pregnancy. He starts to confide that he didn't have the best father growing up, so he doesn't have a template for child-rearing. But before he can finish, a man sneaks up behind him and starts choking him. Margot saves him by casting a spell to get him off, and the guards arrest and take him to the dungeon. Elliot starkly credits this to him trying to express his emotions. He says something along the lines of, that's the last time I tried to do that. It's very shallow thinking, Elliot. Yeah, but he really, I think, was trying to perhaps share something and be vulnerable about his past. Well, it turns out the attacker is a native Valorian, a commoner named Baylor. The council suggests a public execution for him. Her slowness actually suggests death by stretching, by tying each limb to a centaur and having a fifth stick a spike in him. Oh, my God. Yeah, uh, so this is pretty intense. Apparently, it's commonplace, and they don't have a problem with gruesome executions. Very medieval, huh? Yeah. So Margot and Elliot send the rest out and confer together. That sloth is psychotic. It's all psychotic. Did you hear how Tick said commoners? We're the least snobby people in a room. There's something wrong with the room. I love these quotable moments. They're so funny and so eloquently made. But thank God for Margot yet again. Yeah. And there's a lot more work to be done on Fillory than we realized. If they want to turn this into somewhat of a good place to live, there's problems all over the place. Quentin goes to see Emily to apologize, but she doesn't accept. She says she thought they were on the same page about how terrible magic is, and perhaps he could find another company to work at. <laughs> Q goes back to his office, where he continues writing an email to Alice's parents to tell him what happened to her. Yeah, so I didn't realize at first that this letter was to her parents. I thought that he was working on a resignation letter, and he had been back and forth about whether or not to stay at this company. And maybe he was learning his lesson a little bit. But then I realized that in the subject line, it said Alice. So I started looking a little closer, and I'm pretty sure he was trying to write to her parents. All right. I get, I commend him for wanting to let her parents know what's going on, but via email? Yeah. And how are you going to explain that one? Um, yeah, <laughs> especially you know? via email. I, I think if I was Elliot, I'd let break bills deal with that because they've probably dealt with that in the past and they'd probably be better with it 
Yeah. They actually, you know what they probably would do? Just do a spell where they forget they even had a daughter. Yeah, I was thinking that and wondering if it's even possible back to Harry Potter, like the Obliviate spell. But um, Emily seems to be horribly overreacting. Clearly, there's more going on here. She really thought Quentin was in the same place as her, and they were commiserating together. And I think she needed to feel as though he agreed strongly with her. Magic is dangerous. We shouldn't use it. The moment he wavers on that, she has to doubt herself because there's already probably two voices in her head that she's always battling. More importantly, how old are these computers? Yeah. (laughs) The operating system looked ancient. Yeah. We'll go back to the two of them in a moment. It was kind of a quieter scene. First, at Break Bill South, Mayakovsky confirms Penny's hands are useless for magic. Penny confesses he can still travel, but not take others along with him. So Mayakovsky says he can help, but first, the project. He shows him to a room with ropes piled to the ceiling and tells him to take out all the knots. And of course, there's a reference to this later, but this is starting to feel a little Mr. Miyagi. Yes. Don wax off. At this point in the episode, I didn't piece that together. But then once he had his second exercise, I was like, oh, these are like hand exercises. And maybe he's doing this on purpose to strengthen and work on his articulation of his fingers. Yeah, his ability to use the hands again, like we were saying, why couldn't he relearn? By the end, I wasn't entirely sure that that's what was happening. And also, clearly, he has his own purpose for that. But I guess we'll talk about that later. First, we have a doctor's appointment to go to. (laughs) Julia goes to see the doctor to discuss getting an abortion. The doctor tries to tell her there's a waiting list, but she says she needs to be done now. Seeing that it was an abusive situation, the doctor agrees to do it next morning. Later on, Julia tells Katie that she should have known better in the first place, the difference between magic and miracles. Then she confides she's nervous about the abortion, and Katie admits she has had one before, the result of a one-night stand, and says it felt lonely. But Julia is not alone. She's there for her. I commend them for even attempting to tackle this kind of subject matter. It's very difficult, and I think they're doing a good job with it. I just, this could be a personal problem. I still find myself very disinterested with what's happening with Julia. It feels so disconnected from the rest of our main story. And I know they're trying to develop a friendship between her and Katie, but I'm also just not quite feeling that. It feels a little strained and forced to me. Yeah, I think I've said it before. Julia's storyline, as as of now, is not my favorite. I'm kind of tired of us hunting this one fox guy. Yeah, and her continuing to rehash the problems that she's had. You know, that she wanted magic so bad that she went out on this hedge witch quest and it it got away from her. We've been through that. You know, I'm ready to move on with her, and I feel like she could be a more interesting character with more to do in the plot, and I would like to see it get there. I agree. Anyhow, back in Fillory, Margot and Elliot go to speak to the prisoner. They learn that Baylor is a proud soldier of Florians United, a Foo Fighter. Baylor says they will not rest until a Florian sits on the throne. So Elliot suggests telling Ember because he's the one that issued the decree. 
but Baylor insists they will execute every child of Earth. In a private conversation, Elliot then tells Margot if they execute him, they'll make him look like a martyr. So that's not going to work. And admitting that neither knows much about political insurgency, Margot decides to go to the Breakbills library to find some history books. Um, I guess this is just the answer for everything. You can pop in and out of Breakbills, take a book. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know it worked like that. Well, they need to gain some knowledge. We know that they're still green as magicians. And that's the best way to do it, right? Yeah, and the way they do it is funny later on. But what do you think about these Foo Fighters, this group now that we're going to have to contend with? Well, on one hand, I'm like, oh, man, these guys are a bunch of assholes. But when you actually think about it, they are Felorians that feel they have been done wrong for so many years now. They're actually losing magic and their way of life is dying. Yeah. And they believe that the crown should belong to a Felorian. And if you put yourself in that seat, I don't doubt that I would be against that thought. I probably would be a Foo Fighter. I agree, because how could these children of Earth possibly know how to rule this kingdom? They don't know much about Fillory. They're constantly coming and going, so there's no stability to the way it's ruled. And that leads me to my next question. Why did Ember initially issue that decree? Obviously, it was important to the gods that rulers only be children of Earth. So what do you think was behind that? I'm not sure at this point, and I don't think I have enough to even speculate. But what I can say is this is your typical God thing happening where they have a decree, but they don't explain it enough so that we understand why they're doing this. I'm still confident that there is a good reason for the Felorians needing to be ruled by humans from Earth. Yeah. But this is a time for this God to come in and help out and explain why and fix things and, and stop this civil war that's about to happen. It felt a little Narnia to me now, where it has to be these outsiders that come in and rule. And, um, you know, the lion's not going to totally be able to fix everything. They have to do it for themselves to a certain extent. But I am interested to see where that goes. Penny finishes the rope task, only to be told by Mayakovsky that it was just the first step. Uh. Step two is to turn the table into sawdust using a metal file. When he is finished with that, he finally gets a break and the two have a drink together. Yeah, he wasn't necessarily finished. He was finishing, but... Uh, How long do you think it took him oh, to file forever. down that whole table? That was a thick, old school, pure wooden table. Yep. But I'm sure it's a good hand exercise. And I love the fact that the showrunners wanted to bring now the hanging out and the alcohol into it because this is where Mayakovsky can really shine. And this is where they can start talking about the task at hand and what's really going on. And he is the perfect teacher for Penny, as I said before. This kind of temperament is what Penny needs to learn the lessons that maybe he hasn't fully gotten up until this point. So, yeah, I continue to love them being paired together. Now, Emily comes into Quentin's office, late and drunk, saying she owes him an apology for being a bitch. This is also the part where they talk about how everyone masturbates in the office in an attempt to stave off the crushing boredom. She admits she overreacted to his using magic, and he should stay. They can be friends. He agrees, and they leave together to get a drink. 
Then we see them walking the streets together, drinking, when Quentin asks if she blames herself still for the Charlie fiasco. He also tells her that Alice is dead. She admits she does blame herself, and then begins to show him a waterproofing smell to blow smoke rings. Mm -hmm. She says it's okay for her to do this because today is cheat day. They're clearly flirting, blowing smoke shapes together when Emily does one that appears as a trotting horse, her favorite, she says. And this is highly reminiscent of Alice's magic, which makes Quentin very sad, and he says it's his favorite, too. So, you know, when they're walking on the bridge, this is actually when I put it together, who she is in the storyline and how her story intersects with his life. And it probably took me slower than more other people, but I was very happy that it happened this way. It's not just another random person. There's actually a reason for Emily to be in this storyline, and it's perfect. She's the one that changed her face for a professor. Yes. That made Emily's brother try to help her and become a nymph because of the power. I even wondered, just a little thing, but if the horse was something that Charlie had known as well, and maybe him and Alice did together, and that's how she came to know about it, Emily. Oh, I think you might be right. And like you said, the six degrees of separation were coming in here in a beautiful way. And they're both off in their own thoughts, but revolving around the same thing, the, the dangers of magic and how it's gotten away from people they cared about, people they loved, and ruined their lives. So you can see they're feeling very alone and they need each other. They need to feel this same sadness together right now. They go back to her place where he says he wants to make bad decisions. But she wants to do a spell. She's really getting into the idea of this cheat day. It seems like she's terrified of magic because of what happened with her, but she really misses it all the same. She can't stop herself now that she's gotten going. This is when I started to realize that magic is like a drug to Emily. Kind of like an ex-habit, the way she acts. She got a taste of it at lunch with Q, and all day has been thinking about it. Her first reaction was to get it away, get it away, because it's bad. Yep. And then she has a couple of drinks and she starts to fold to her inner needs and wants. And she does the magic smoke rings. So now this is the first time she's done magic in a while. And it's a harmless little trick. But yep. then, as we see, it unfolds into greater magic. And the addiction is at full strength now. And I wondered if that's her personality, if it's always been a thing for her, or a result of denying herself magic for so long. I can see magic being a sort of drug effect on people. If you have the ability to do it and you shut it off for so long and then you get a taste of it again, you realize, oh man, I was really worried about this shirt and now I don't have to worry again. Oh yeah, that's the good stuff about the magic. We saw that exact thing happen to Julia when she learned that magic existed and it was like a drug for her. She was dwindling away without it. She was living for the next spell she could find online and teach herself. And she didn't know how to live now in a world where she couldn't do it. How do you think you would act if you had magic and you were trying not to use it anymore? Probably the same way. And I don't even think I would have the restraint to go that long. I'd be more like Q, who just is inadvertently doing it at odd times. Yeah, same here. I think I would still be utilizing magic for the mundane. Yeah, and just telling myself as a rationalization, I'm only going to use small spells, nothing crazy. Exactly. Now, Emily does say to Q when they're fighting in the office that 
No, it wasn't a harmless magic. We had just finished saying that there's a consequence for every time we use magic. And then you use it. And this is her consequence. She folds right into this where it's a quote unquote cheat day. But immediately the next morning, she's ready to do cheat day again. Yeah. And that's the consequence of cleaning her shirt. And she's going to blame it on him. Of course, he was the instigator behind this. Elliot and Margot, looking through examples of history books, make a list of famous decisions. Execution versus diplomacy. They determine they must execute Baylor. Elliot resigns himself that this is his burden to handle. And Margot tells him to get over yourself, Ned Stark. That was beautiful. <laughs> I love that line. Secretly, Elliot goes to Baylor with a chance for him to save his life. He asks him, if he were in charge, what would he do to fix Villery? I think that's a major sign of a good king. I was just going to say that it's a symbol of his wisdom that he knew they were kind of fooling themselves by going through these history books. And yeah, the examples were all execution. That's how leaders in the past have handled it. But that's not how he wants to rule. And he believes there must be a better way. So instead of just trying to get rid of this person that's a problem, let's figure out why. Why do they think that children of Earth have been ruling badly? And maybe there's something to his point, even though he's carrying out in a bad way. Maybe he does have good ideas about things they could do differently with the kingdom, and he's willing to listen to that. I thought this was a perfect line and a perfect way to go with the show. But then it kind of falls to the wayside, because we don't know what Baylor said. Yeah. But it seems like the way the story has panned out afterwards is that he just said, don't kill me because that's the only thing that the King has done. I was hoping there'd be an idea behind it. We're not going to kill him, but this is what we're going to do to help fix Fillory. And then, you know, then it snowballs into good things, but it seems that Baylor is still out to get him Baylor and the Foo Fighters. They could possibly go back to that later, but I agree. I would like to see what could come out of that. Back to break bill South. At Mayakovsky's questioning, Penny says he likes magic, but like any other necessity. So Mayakovsky tells him this might be his chance to walk away, to have a few years of a happy life, because there's a bad surprise in store for everyone. There is a bad surprise in store for everyone. What surprise? Energy currents should be constant. But it's not. Why? There is something happening to magic. The wellspring. And fillery. The current is sputtering. And they're trying to fix it. Maybe it's going to disappear. If that's the case. She could get real. If magic goes, it will be very bad time to be magician. So consider the advantage of getting out right now. Okay, thank you. This is when Mayakovsky starts to open up. He admits that he's in Breakbill's South because of a magic bond. He's not allowed to leave. They've trapped him there. And when Penny wonders aloud what he did to deserve this, Mayakovsky tells him he slept with many students and once the wrong one. So it was either do this or give up magic forever. And I, I think he tells him this because he can understand no matter the consequences or how bad it seems, Giving up magic is just not an option. It wasn't for him, and it's not for Penny, so he gets that. Believe it or not, at this point, I still didn't put two and two together. Oh, no? Yeah. In regards to Emily and Charlie, 
Mayakovsky. Yeah. So when we do get to that point, I was like, oh, shit. I didn't even think about that. That's perfect. They were laying the seeds here, yeah. <laughs> this is probably the first episode, I may be wrong, but in my memory, the first episode where we have these twists that we didn't know. Because there's been a lot going on in the show where we kind of saw what was happening or what was coming. Yeah. I mean, besides the deaths. I didn't see the deaths coming, but this felt kind of like uh, in a weird way, like, you know, Mr. Robot or Westworld where there's a twist and it they interlink these storylines and you're like, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Uh, a giant feeling. mystery running underneath the surface that connects our characters in ways that we didn't understand. I appreciated that, and I, I like the bond that's being forged here. Mayakovsky opening up about the truth of magic. Somebody that actually knows what's going on, who's been tracking it, and can share that knowledge with our characters. That's what we've been looking for Dean Fogg to do this whole time. Back to Quentin and Emily. Emily does a spell, and it changes Quentin's appearance to Mayakovsky. He realizes that's the professor she slept with back then. And that's when I realized, too. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's the perfect realization. I was like, oh my God, it makes so much sense now. <laughs> she wants him to tell her what he thinks when he looks at her, but with a Russian accent. Oh boy. We realize that she is still in love with him. Of course she is. Yeah, but that was horribly sad and desperate when you understand the spell that she wants to do is to turn him into Mayakovsky so she can have that back, even if it's just for one night. Even though in the short term, it'll make her feel better. It's just like drugs, again. In the yeah. short term, if you do whatever drug you, you're addicted to, you're going to feel so much better for a second. But then once it's over, once that high is over, your addiction is now at full strength again, and you have to fight it all over again, these feelings. And in her case, these feelings of missing Mayakovsky and yearning for him is going to be fresh again. She took that scab that was starting to heal and she kind of scratched it open. Well, yeah, emotionally, on top of all that, like you said, she's not dealing with the reality of the situation, either by trying to talk to him, see him actually confront him or move on from him. She remains stuck somewhere in between by allowing herself to do things like this. When they are finished, she says it's his turn and changes her appearance to look like Alice. She explains that it's their memories that project the images. Quentin admits he misses her. They both knew the whole time they were using each other to get their moment with the past they lost. Yeah. Again, it's so sad. And it reminded me how much I love Olivia. <laughs> yeah. The actress who plays Alice. And he's, he's weirded out about it. You can tell he, he doesn't really want to do it, but once she's in front of him, he can't stop himself. And I think he's using it for a totally different reason than Emily. He knows he needs the closure with her. He never really got to say goodbye and have that moment with her. And so he's going to use this to do that. But you can see how they're both viewing it differently the next morning. Quentin feels strange about the whole thing and tries to leave abruptly, saying it can't be cheat day every day. He says he doesn't want to use his magic like that. Feels worse than before. She gets personally offended and he leaves. Okay, why did she take this personally? I forget exactly what she says, but basically like, oh, so that's it? Um, I'm not good enough for you? You just use me and leave? Yeah. <clears throat> Even though she knew they were both using each other, I think it's another one of these cases where 
she thought they were on the same page about this. When he saw that she could do this spell, they could keep using it like this to live in the past. But when she realizes that he thinks it's messed up, what does that say about her? That she still wants to do that, you know? Yeah, and if you think about it, everything she's done in the past, or we've heard about she's done in the past, with the changing her face and getting Mayakovsky in trouble and getting Julia's brother killed... She is a very selfish person. Yeah. And the way she reacts to Quentin's pain that morning is, again, very selfish. No empathy for anyone else. And not thinking through the consequences. And again, she, she's ready to just stay stuck there. And if he leaves, now they can't do that together. She doesn't have a partner in this anymore. Okay, let's go back to Castle Whitespire, where Elliot announces to the council they will not execute the prisoner. It's in Fillory's best interest to keep him alive. Margot objects, but the council says that while the High Queen may voice her opinion, ultimate judgment lies with the king. Margot is none too happy about their backwards patriarchy. Elliot explains he's about to be a father, and he wants to raise his child in a kingdom where they don't just kill every problem. They listen and judge accordingly. Margot says that's naive and a mistake. Back at the doctor's, when Julia gets to the doctor's office for her procedure, the receptionist calls her name, looks at the appointment on the computer screen, but then deletes her name, saying she never had an appointment. Julia forces her to call the doctor for clarification, who lets her in. This was strange. I immediately noticed there was something weird about the way Katie was looking at the receptionist. For a minute, I even wondered if she had done magic on her, like realized for some reason this was a bad idea for Julia, but very shortly into, you know, the next scene, they're going to cut it here where they go back to the doctor's office. You see that it's more, she sent something was wrong with the situation, wrong with the way the receptionist was acting and she's getting nervous on Julia's behalf. Very strange. We knew that it was some separate entity. At first I was thinking it was the Fox who was changing the way this woman is thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll come back to that. We have one more scene at Breakville South where Penny has had enough of the Karate Kid bullshit, quote-unquote. <laughs> Mayakovsky finally explains the reasoning behind the task. When magic goes, it will not be completely gone if you can store it, like a battery. And that's what he's building, a storage cell to hold magic. He tells Penny that he released energy while he was doing these tasks, and Mayakovsky stored it. About his hands, he tells him he can go to Fillory and get this moss, bring it back to him, and he will use it to help. So, I mean, the hand thing perhaps partially was to help him rebuild his strength, his dexterity, but really it was the fact that Penny was giving off magic while doing all of this, even though it wasn't magical tasks, and he was trapping it inside of this battery cell. So you read it as Penny was giving off magic? I thought maybe when he undid a knot, he was giving out the magic. The magic was coming out of the knot. And when he was breaking down that table, the magic was coming out of the table. Oh, perhaps, yeah. Something to do with the interaction of the tasks, though, would release it. So it's kind of funny. I mean, it was a bit of a selfish reasoning. He didn't tell him this. You wonder if he's done this to other people, other students perhaps, because... It seems he's building that up, this backup, in case magic does get depleted. Yeah, I think like every genius teacher 
could be perceived as selfish, but I think it was in both of their benefits. And this battery is not the last we've seen of it. We may be dependent upon this towards the end of this season. Yeah, that's the real question. What does he plan to do with it? But ultimately, the cure for Penny's hands is not that. It's moss in Fillory. So <laughs> I guess we'll get to that next episode. Hey, if there's something that's going to heal you from someone who hurt you in Fillory, chances are it's in Fillory. Yeah. I think in the end, he's going to have to come back to that river watcher. Yes. Now, on a bit of a tangent, I had mentioned the last Fillory quest that we did on the website. I wasn't able to read the descriptions about the different creatures fully. So I went back to that this week, and I read a part that talks about distinguishing between two species of nymphs, naiads and dryads. So dryads are these aloof arboreal spirits who live amongst Fillory's sentient trees. But naiads are seductive water spirits that you need to appease in order to cross a river. This made me wonder if our river man could be some form of naiad, and he hasn't exacted his payment yet. Mm, You might be right. In the end, he's going to have to face his mistakes, and his mistake was being rude and being selfish towards the river man. Maybe that moss is where the river man is, so it's not even about the moss. Just the teacher knows Oh, what that he actually be. needs to do. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Back to our Foo Fighters. Fen <laughs> goes to see Baylor privately. She tells him she's not a Foo Fighter anymore. Apparently, she was supposed to be the sleeper agent inside the castle, waiting to help stage a coup. But now that she is carrying Elliot's child, she's backing out. He tries to blackmail her, threatening to reveal the truth to Elliot to get more information from her. She says if the fighters make another move, she'll kill him herself. So this is where I'm wondering if the Foo Fighters are getting a, a little bit silly and tropey, but I like Fen's reaction to it and what it's going to mean for her relationship with Elliot. He's clearly going to find out eventually, whether it's from them or she tells him herself. And this is just going to be another thing for poor Elliot to deal with and what's going to happen there. How can I deceive the High King for the Foo Fighters when I am his wife? But it is more complicated than that. I joined the Foo Fighters back in tree school. All my friends were doing it. I was there more for the Foo culture, but it felt good to be a part of something bigger, to find the Foo in you, like the pamphlet said, to take back Fillory for its rightful rulers and rid it of the self-serving children of Earth. Yet now, everything is different. My husband, he's not just a child of Earth. He's Elliot. They're nothing like I thought they would be. Well, Margot rather is, but I can't let anything happened to them. I know in his heart, Elliot can be a good king. I'm sending this message to the Grand Master Fu to tell him to halt all attacks against the king and queen or else I will move heaven and earth to stop them. Besides, they are making vast improvements here. The champagne effort is coming along. They're 
working on something called a Mardi Gras. I'm not sure what it is, but it sounds promising. Being a true Foo Fighter means fighting for the best for Fillory. And I believe that is Elliot. And somewhat Margot. Do the right thing. Look inside for the best of you. For Fillory. Yeah, I'm thinking... Do we trust Fen at this point? It sounds like we should. It sounds like her heart's in the right place. She actually loves Elliot. But she grew up with being a Foo Fighter. Yeah, and if, being trained her whole life that she was going to marry the king just so that they could get in there and do their thing. So one false move or one mistake from either Elliot or Margot might change her mind. Yeah. And I think that's something to be worrisome about. At the same time, it kind of mixes it up for us and makes a very interesting storyline. Does she tell Elliot who she is? And do they work together to either defeat the Foo Fighters or come to an understanding and get the Foo Fighters on their side? Yeah, I think that's going to show us where her true allegiance lies because I don't think she changed her mind based on her feelings for Elliot or her thoughts that he could be a good king. It wasn't until she found out she was pregnant. So now it's her child in the mix, and that's what makes her back out. So we need to see how much she is really on Elliot's side, and if she comes and tells him that herself... I might feel better about it. We have two scenes left in this episode. The first is back at the doctor's office, where the doctor readies herself for the procedure, but she keeps dropping the equipment, confused as to why she can't hold it properly. Then a strange look comes over her face. She picks up a tool and drives it into her eye. Katie has to rush in to pull it out. Julia begs Katie to use magic to get the baby out of her, but Katie says they will find another way. For now, they have to get rid of the conspicuous dead body. Now, oh my goodness, why didn't Julia stop her using magic from doing this? Yeah, you kept using, you kept yelling at the TV. Use your magic. Use <laughs> some like magic. Running in to rip the tool out. Like, just stop her. Use magic. Well, but she was she sedated. Was, she you was know, shocked. She, Shocked, but also wasn't she on like some kind of medicine? Yeah, to... I, I think she was already getting that anesthesia. Yeah. What could you have done either? I don't know if she knows any kind of magic to stop what's going on. Well, and what's behind it is clearly Reynard. So probably it wouldn't have been powerful enough to go against him. And that raises all sorts of questions of what's going to happen now in this showdown with Reynard. Because he's not going to stop coming after her to protect his offspring. Hmm. You know, I thought it was Reynard at first, too, but I think it's the baby. I think the baby is protecting itself, and this is the baby's magic. Oh, that's a good thought. I like that. That's why it takes a little longer. I mean, it's a fetus right now. She doesn't even have a hump, but it has enough magic to change the minds of the receptionist and the doctor by first messing with the doctor's hands and muscular abilities to yeah. prevent the procedure from going on. And then 
in a demon-like nature, just making the doctor kill herself. Yeah, not survival kill instincts. Me. I think it's more interesting if it is the baby and not the fox. Because I feel like the fox would have shown up and done his little, like, talky-talky, I'm so cool, and, and uh, little speech about, this is my baby, and then kills, <laughs> kills the doctor. Well, and now if she has to contend with that, too, what is she going to do? Is there anything she can do about the pregnancy? You have to imagine that as the baby grows, it will just get more and more powerful. I don't believe there is anything she can do. I mean, falling down a flight of stairs isn't going to kill it. No, no. Oh, maybe some magic. It's going to have to be some pretty strong magic. And like Katie was saying, that's going to come with quite some risks. So I assume that's going to be the rest of the journey for her this season. So do you think the journey is going to pivot from killing Reynard the fox to killing the baby? Yeah. I mean, that's probably going to be first and foremost. Maybe there's a potion they can make and she can drink it and that can kill the baby. I can't believe I keep saying kill the baby. I I know. It sounds horrible. Well, you know, it's not really like a regular baby (laughs) what's happening with her. Do you think this was a risk for the magicians as a show with this PC world we're in right now for them to bring up abortion in this manner? Yeah, well, I said it before that I commend them for even trying to tackle the topic going from rape to abortion. Everything that Julia is going through has been it's not something easy for them to talk about, and yet they're not shying away from it because this is who they are. Now in our last scene, Quentin finally sends the email to Alice's parents. When he leaves the office, he sees Alice's vision. Real Alice, standing across the street and mouthing for help. She looks horrible. She looks beaten and battered. She also seems like she mouthed, help me. Quentin is so shocked, he almost steps in front of a bus trying to get to her but she disappears. Certainly not going to be the last we see of her. So this brings up a lot of questions. Is she really still alive or was this just a vision Quentin was having? If she is, where is she? Is she actually there right now? Is he just seeing projections of her? What is she? Is she still a Niffin? And what does she want? She wants help. I'll tell you that much. I'm going to believe and for no reason other than selfish reasons, that she is still alive. And it's going to be Quentin's new quest to find out if she's alive and where she is. I think she might be in purgatory somewhere. Maybe he just killed the Niffin inside of her, but she still exists somewhere. Well, I was wondering that too, if it's not so much that she's in a purgatory place, but she's in purgatory trapped inside of this, her own body. You know, she is a Niffin, but the real Alice is still in there, kind of. Yeah. And that's what she's asking for help with. I agree, and I hope that is the storyline. There's so much potential in this. I was really excited to find out that we still have more left in the regards of Alice. Yes, I agree. Well, that wraps up all of our scenes. So let's get to how you felt about the episode overall. Jason, what do you give episode five? I loved this episode. It had such a different feeling to it, and there was so much going on in regards to storyline that we didn't see coming, and this was new to us as viewers of the show. So I'm going to give this episode 9.5 crowns, which is the highest I've given so far. 
Nice. Well, I agree. I really liked what's going on with the crew. I am still feeling a little dissatisfied with the Julia storyline and given the fact that they're still spending a decent amount of time splitting it with that, I'm going to give it a 9.4, but that's the same that I gave last episode, which was my favorite episode of this season. And I, I felt the same. The pace is continuing and I really love what they're doing with the plot line. So Christina, what's your MVM most valuable magician? I'm sure you can see it coming a mile away, but I'm giving it to Mayakovsky. <laughs> I I can't help it. Who knows how many more times we'll get to see Mayakovsky and he was brilliant here. Perhaps trying to help his own ends and his own purposes, but his own purposes seem to be for the betterment of magic as well. And as I said earlier, I think he is the perfect teacher for Penny and exactly what he needs. So he's not only helping our crew, but magic as a whole, definitely the magician of the episode. Well, I again have the same magician, (laughs) Charlie Mayakovsky. And for the same reasons you said, he's just a great character. He's so much fun. He's like a thorn bush. Yeah. You know, he's very, if you try to touch him, you're going to get hurt. But he's very, you wouldn't say beautiful to look at, but he's very fun to look at and listen to. And there's so many layers to him that we don't even know yet that hopefully throughout these seasons, we'll get to know him more. And I hope he becomes more of a main character for us. He's definitely colorful. (laughs) So we also had our fifth fillery quest, True or Foo, where you have to figure out if you are a loyalist by choosing answers to certain questions. So I went through it and it says you are loyal to the crown, a loyalist through and through. Same here. I think the resulting answer will always be you are loyal, but it's fun nevertheless. Moving on to Clatcher's comments, we just got a tweet just now from one of our Clatcher's, Melly, in regards to our Twitter retweet of what character you are. And she got Elliot, which is her favorite character, and she's very happy about it. Oh, nice. She also had a comment on last episode that we didn't get to because it came in right after we recorded for episode four, but she gave her funniest and saddest moment. So the saddest moment was when Q said, send me home. And the funniest moment, where are my stuff touchers? (laughs) That's going to rank high on the season two magicians overall. And we both agree with you on those. I want to give a shout out to John69422579833389 (laughs) for his lovely review on our magicians podcast channel. He writes, this is a great podcast. They love the show and the books. Their insight and reviews are fun to listen to. Overall, five out of five crowns. And with the title, great cast with water cooler besties, world builder Emily writes a beautiful review to us on the same channel, giving you a highlight of what she's wrote. Before I knew it, I became a clatcher. In this digital world, it's not always easy to find a community. Jason and Chris really try to make that happen. And it feels like they're your water cooler besties. Oh, I love that because that's exactly what we're always going for from the time we started Coffee Clatch Crew, just a bunch of friends sitting around talking about their favorite shows and what they like about it. And one of our favorite parts is bringing in the community and talking to you guys about what you think. It's great to hear that you feel the same way. We always appreciate any feedback, of course. You can email us. Contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com. 
You can tweet at us. Check out our website. A lot of the feedback that we got this week was related to our Patreon, which has started to grow, and we're building our community there. So you might want to take a look. We have a lot of different levels where we provide different bonus features and episodes. We're having a great time. Oh, my God. In particular, I love our bonus episodes. We really find interesting things to talk about. We dive into real-life stories about ghost hauntings. We also talk about blood types and what they mean to you. I mean, it's across the board, and, and it's such a good time to do it. It's so fun, and it's laid back. We also bring up our favorite TV shows and books that we're currently getting into that we don't go in-depth with on our reviews, but just to give recommendations if you're looking for new stuff. And before we get off this, last but definitely not least... A big shout out to DFW Suburbia. This podcast makes the show so much more fun and make more sense. So thank you all for leaving your reviews. Keep them coming. And we're glad that you're part of the Clatcher crew. Welcome to the family. Agreed. So here comes the point with minor spoilers where we talk about next episode. If you don't want to hear, we will see you next time when we review episode six, The Cock Barons. (laughs) For everybody else that's still here... We got just a brief glimpse in the preview. We see that Quentin continues to look for Alice and to see her. He tries to tell the group about it, but they insist she's gone. And it looks like she actually might be starting to scare him. It seems as though it's going to get a little dark and sinister. Also, you have the title itself. We know that the Clock Barons is a place in Fillory. And I'm sure we'll get the description on that with the website soon. But instead, they are being clever with their titles, so it's actually called The Cock Barons. And I look forward to diving more into that whole Alice storyline that we talked about being interested in. I think we'll get more of it in Episode 6. Thank you for listening to the CKC Podcast. Until next week, this round's on me. This round is on me! Try again.